Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Today's podcast was really fun for me. Jen Kuhn is joining me today. Dr. Kuhn is a pediatric psychologist working in integrated primary care at Nemours Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for Children in Wilmington, Delaware. She received her bachelor's degree and master's degree in psychology from Tulane University in New Orleans and received her PhD in clinical psychology from Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo, Michigan in 2016. And this is where she and I crossed paths. She completed her pre-doctoral internship in pediatric psychology at the Monroe Meyer Institute at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska, and completed her postdoctoral fellowship in pediatric integrated behavioral health at Nemours Alfred I. DuPont Hospital for Children. In her current role, she works in two pediatric primary care clinics, one urban and one suburban, providing behavioral health services as part of a multidisciplinary team. Her clinics serve patients aged 0 to 21 and their families, and as part of this team, she is responsible for providing prevention-based services, psychoeducational services, consultation and education to medical trainees and staff, warm handoffs and consultation with patients, short-term therapy, and brief intervention assessments. Her specific areas of interest include early intervention services, postpartum depression and anxiety screening, postpartum wellness, management of disruptive behaviors, ADHD assessments, anxiety, and sleep. In providing clinical services, she supervises psychology residents, postdoctoral fellows, and provides behavioral health education to medical students and residents. As you can see, she is very busy in pediatric clinics, and I know that they are so happy to have her services. And stay tuned for the interview, and hopefully you can see where this might fit into your practice. Hi, Jen. How are you? Hi, I'm doing really well. How are you? I'm good. It's so nice to see you. It's been a long time. It's been a very long time. It's wonderful to see you. I wish it was in person one day. (laughs) I know. Don't we wish all of it was in person, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, on the introduction, of course, I introduced you as being a former doctoral student and you and I did some clever and creative things, I think, back Mm -hmm, then. mm -hmm, And we'll mm -hmm. talk about that in just a minute. But how did you choose to be a clinical psychologist? Where did that come from? It's a great question because it wasn't something I always wanted to do, but I did always think I wanted to be in pediatrics in some way. So when I was like younger, I used to tell people I wanted to be a pediatrician. I kind of got close, I guess, but not at all, not doing medical stuff. And when I got to college, I started taking pre-med classes and I also took some psychology classes and I just found myself gravitating more towards that like psychology field. And also my sister is a nurse, but she's a psychiatric nurse. And so I would hear like her, she works at a VA, I'd hear her. I guess stories would be a good word, but what she was doing and I was really interested in it. And then probably not until I'd say like my junior year, I started realizing like, oh, I could do this. I could be like a psychologist. Like that could be something I'm interested in. So then I ended up majoring in psychology, which wasn't initially my plan. I worked for a psychiatrist for two years and then was like, I really want to do this. I want to do the therapy side on my own. I want to be able to do all of it. And so that's kind of what brought me there. And then my pediatric interest 
I think led me to where I am now, but I did not know that was going to happen initially. So that's kind of interesting too. I always thought I work with kids in some way, but now I'm like basically working in pediatrics without doing any of the medical stuff. In your training, which I learned after working with you guys, that it is like really long. It's like residency. I mean, it takes you like seven, eight years to do a PhD, which I don't think a lot of people realize. And I think it's really okay that you get the title of doctor also. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) I know that sometimes people are like, yeah, but you're not a real doctor. It's like, yeah, you are. (laughs) Well, thank you. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm, yeah, I don't solve any diseases or anyone better when they're really sick, but yeah, we do go to school for way longer than you think. And I think back, like I've been doing clinical work, like what I'm doing to some degree since the end of my first year of grad school. So that would have been in early 2011. So it's been 10 years. Cause sometimes I think, man, I feel like I just started, but I didn't just start. It's been actually a really long time. Cause you start so early on being not independent, but kind of, I mean, you see your own patients pretty quickly, your own clients at that point, they were more outpatient. It is an outpatient setting, but yeah, it's kind of crazy to think about it like that. When did you first hear about the whole idea of integrated behavioral health? Where did that come from? So that was in a practicum, you know, Dr. Scott Gaynor, we had a practicum class and we read a book and I'm blanking on the name. This might be like mom brain thing because I forget names now. I could look it up, but there was a book we had to read and it was all about primary care. You probably know the book. It's purple. I'll think about it. And we had to read that for our practicum and I'd never heard of it before. And when we read it, it was like, oh, this seems really, really interesting. Very different from what we were doing. Like we were being trained in pretty much pretty traditional outpatient therapy, whether it's family therapy or with adults or with children. And then I did a, like one of my practicum sites was an inpatient Borges hospital, if anyone knows that. And that was an intense experience. And initially I thought I wanted to do something like that with my future. And then I was kind of like, oh, I'm not sure about this. And then Dr. Cullinan, who was on podcasts recently, she formed a relationship with you and was able to create that integrative behavioral health practicum site with you. And then I joined in. So it all started from like a book and then me just kind of experiencing what I had been through like the inpatient work I did and the outpatient work and realized I wanted to do something a little bit more preventative and a little bit more hands-on more quickly, I guess would be the right way to say it, rather than getting people when they're at their like absolute breaking point, which is what I was doing essentially. And that is really hard work and sometimes really challenging. Like you don't maybe see as much progress or you can, but maybe not. And then thinking about from like an integrated behavioral health standpoint, sometimes you can see progress faster or you can catch things quicker. And it's really nice to be able to do that so that families don't feel like they get to a breaking point and then they're seeking this like help at the end of their rope or something. So that's where it all started. And that was probably like middle of my graduate school career is where I started hearing about it. Well, and I think back on it, Mm -hmm. I, I liken it to being at the hip because I mean, you guys were literally with me all day long and And it was so much fun to have like this little side team to be able to say, hey, you have a question about temper tantrums. I have an expert right here. Wouldn't you like to speak with them? And there you were and off I went. And it was a a great thing. So you've been doing this now at Nemours for quite some time since your postdoc. Yeah. So yeah, it's 2016. 2016. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. um, how do you think that it best serves the patients that you see? So I think the best thing is kind of like what you said, I'm not as fortunate at any word to be able to just kind of like be at someone's hip, which I wish I was, but you know, there's a lot more challenges with like billing and licensure and all that stuff, but, but I can do some of that. And I think that's what it has been so wonderful in the clinics that I serve. So being able to just be there when I'm 
needed the most. Like if someone is coming in, they're just like two-year-old having temper tantrums. And then they're asking their pediatrician who has great things to say, but then they're like, you know what? I have someone else who can help you and I can go do the other thing I need to do because clinic is busy and I don't have the 15 minutes left to kind of talk about this. And then I can come in and do that and then potentially see that patient for even a couple more times so that then they feel really good. So they're not just like leaving going, okay, that was helpful, but I want more. They can get more. I think that's pretty great. I think the other thing is, and and this has been a challenge this pandemic year, but I think because we've been there, more and more people are seeking us out, which is as exhausting as it might be. It's really nice to see that so many people are actually reaching out. Whereas I don't know, we're in need even more, I think because of the pandemic, but also because we're there so much people want to see us. And I think that's wonderful. Whereas I don't know, like maybe 10 years ago, I don't know that people would have been asking for us as much at all, but because they know we're there, they're asking for us. They're calling themselves. They're being like, I know you have a psychologist in clinic and we see them and that's wonderful. So it's great to like have that relationship and then the patients trust you and want to come see you. I work with students too, or like, you know, interns and they want to see them too. And that's, it's great. It's wonderful. Well, wouldn't yeah. it be nice if it just became the standard of care everywhere? Yes, yes. And, you know, as a primary care provider, you know, and I've said this numerous times on the podcast, yes. it is a game changer and it should just be kind of routinized so that it's just not like some strange thing. Because I think, like you said, parents will come to expect it. And, you know, if you want to be a competitive practice, yeah, I think it's something that people want and it's yeah. one-stop shopping. And of course, with COVID's, so much of this kind of work is now available via tele. Mm -hmm. And so I know our social workers that are doing integrated behavioral health, they said it's actually easier right now because everybody has to mask and wear face shields and stuff. They can do a lot of the assessments and the parents prefer it. You know, there's not travel. So there's just some really interesting benefits that who knew that we would have learned it. I agree. Yeah, I totally agree. It's interesting. You say that like people are going to start seeking it out in the practices. And obviously I'm biased. When I was looking for my own pediatrics practice, I found one that had a psychologist there and actually know the psychologist too. But you know, anyway, but I was like, I need to go to a place that has this there just because it makes me feel like they're actually caring about the whole family and, you know, hopefully doing some like more in trauma for informed care, like different things like that. And so I really search for that. And I push other people to do that too. My friends who ask me questions about like, what should I look for in pediatrics? practice. I just think it's important because it's nice to have, even if they don't need to seek that psychologist's help, but I think it's nice to have that team building like approach to care for these patients. Well, it's just having another expert in the practice. And I think about sort of what a pediatric practice can offer, you know, like having lab and x-ray conveniently Mm -hmm. located is wonderful. And having a nurse care manager that can help with complex care and coordinated Mm -hmm. care, and then having a psychologist and integrated Mm -hmm. behavioral health Mm -hmm. person that can do some assessment. I mean, it just makes sense. It sort of broadens the scope Mm -hmm. of the services that you can provide. And I think think a lot of times people are worried about like, how am I going to be able to pay for this? And mm-hmm. if you're at a big organization, they may cover the costs, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I still wonder if there's not creative ways, even for private practices to figure out some way of, yeah. you know, if not, you know, making any money on it necessarily, but break even. Yeah. 
I agree. Like that part is tricky because we bill like psychotherapy codes because we do based on our hospital setting. But I do wonder if you were in like a smaller practice, how do you make that work if you're trying to not lose money? We don't want to lose money. I do think we're not money makers. That's a good way to put it in the sense that even our billing isn't making all this money, but it can break even as value in other ways. But I think you're right for those like smaller practices. I think it can be a challenge. But I think once people do, they see the value in it no matter what. But I know like a lot of places will look. So when I did my internship, I did my internship at the University of Nebraska at the Monroe Meyer Institute, and they do a lot of grant funding for these smaller clinics. So I mean, if, if you can do that, that'd be great. That's also another challenge too. But I right. absolutely, yeah. yeah. yeah grant funded things are always tricky, Always right? difficult. But like once, you know, that was how they'd started and did it. It's like amazing to me that they've done so well in that way. And that they've kind of continued with that. But yeah, so there's so many different things we can do, but it can be tricky. When you have a bigger institution though, it's a little easier. You're right. Right. Well, mm-hmm. I'm thinking, I thought about this today. I'm like, I should have a guest on that can actually talk about mm-hmm. payment and, you know, what insurance yeah. companies are covering and well, just the actual logistics of setting it up in a way that is beneficial without costing you a fortune. Yeah. And the other thing is even for us, so we're in a major hospital that can do a lot of this for us, but even the way we do things, it could be done better. And I know it could be. And so even I think about it from my perspective, there's little things we do that we don't do any billing for. And that's fine. Like, I don't care, but it matters to the hospital. Right. And so there's obviously more that we could figure out. And I, we've had people come talk about different creative ways, but it always kind of comes back to like some sort of like magical funding. But it would be cool if somebody, yeah, if you get someone that like has maybe started a practice, I actually have a friend who started a practice in North Carolina kind of like came in and was like, we want to do this. And I, she's great to talk to. I don't know the ins and outs, but her and a colleague, I think the colleague had some money kind of put up front, but then was able to then figure it out from there. But it's pretty cool. Yeah. I think it takes creativity. Yeah. A lot of creativity, a lot of time too. Like I think it's more time than you think because my colleague took a while, but now it's like thriving. Yeah. Well, and the other big news is that you just had a baby. Mm -hmm. I sure did. Yay. A big congratulations. <laughs> Thank so you. So I'm just curious as a <laughs> new mom and yeah. a pediatric psychologist, yeah. were you prepared to be a mom? Did that help? Yes and no. So that's my answer. Yes and no. There are many things I think I was prepared. Like I know the basic behavioral principles of things. I teach this stuff all the time. So in that sense, I know I have some knowledge there. And then I had this baby and I had no idea what I was doing. So no, I guess I wasn't prepared Um, because it's very different when it's your own baby. And when you're sleep deprived and you also, you hear about all this stuff. I can talk about sleep and all this stuff, but until you experience it, it's so different, right? I've talked with new moms about sleeping, just all these things that like, I know how to do this. No, actually it was really hard and it still is. And just trying to figure it out every day. And I have to remind myself like, and sometimes my husband does this too. Like I do know some of this stuff and I need to like remember. So I was set up in a really good way. I have some knowledge of this stuff and it, I still didn't feel that prepared. So no, I guess no is the answer. <laughs> Well, oh, no. I would echo that. And oh. I've talked before about my own like postpartum stuff. And, yes. you know, I yes. thought, well, I'm a pediatrician and I was in residency with my first one and yeah. she was colicky. And I thought, what on earth have I been telling people? Because I had no clue what colic was, you know, and when you tell somebody, well, this will go away and it gets better mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, six weeks and you're thinking, I don't know how I'm going to get through this day. Today. Mm-hmm. That's like not helpful 
information. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're <laughs> so, right. You're right. Like saying, oh, it'll get better. And like, cause everything's like, I, my baby was not colicky, but I was prepared. I tried to, in my head, I was like, if she is, I, it only lasts six. Weeks. That doesn't make sense. Like six weeks at the night, she, last night she woke up crying and it was like 10 minutes. It felt like six hours. Like I was like, this is awful. <laughs> cause I think she was like a little gassy or something. I don't know. But I was like, I was almost in tears. Yeah. So it's like, no, it's not the same when you're in it. Then when we're saying it'll go away in like six weeks. No, <laughs> that doesn't feel that good. Right. Like it doesn't feel good. So thinking about it like day by day, what people are going through, the days can be really long and confusing. Well, and I do think, Mm -hmm. you know, I think more and more people are recognizing that it's Mm -hmm. important that we ask about how moms are doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And some places it's pretty formal. And, you know, so I think in most OB offices now asking about how people are doing using the Edinburgh is the most common. Mm -hmm. And then in pediatric practices, we have been doing it in our practice for a couple of years now. Yeah. But initially there was a lot of like, oh my God, you know, she's not Mm -hmm. my patient. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so what do you think about asking? I mean, is that something we should be doing? I, hundred percent think it's something we should be doing. I do think you're right about the mom's not my patient. You do run into a little mom's not the patient. You do run into a little bit of confusion about what do you do with them? And this is all just logistics, but it's true. I mean, it is like, what do you do? Or what if there is a crisis and there's an adult there in a crisis where it's very different to handle an adult crisis versus a child crisis. But I think it is so important. Our hospital's just now starting to do it pretty regularly at that two month visit as of like the past, I think maybe a couple year year even. And we're slowly starting to become like part of that because again it's like how do we support these moms but then also we don't want to get into this like sticky situation of like well now are we treating this patient here like how do we do this so we're still trying to navigate that but I will say from like a mom perspective too so yes my OBGYN office they gave me the PHQ2 in the very beginning of my pregnancy they asked me in the hospital they gave me an Edinburgh in the hospital and they gave me Edinburgh my six-week postpartum visit And then I got an Edinburgh at my two-month pediatrics visit. But when I think about it, how many times do you go to the doctor during your pregnancy? I don't know, 20? It feels like 20. I don't know. It's a lot. And then you go at six weeks and then that's it. And then you're done. And so if you don't go to your pediatric, most people are going to go. You don't have anyone else asking you these questions. So it is so important, I think, that the pediatrician asks these questions because then it's not like postpartum depression stops at six weeks. It might not even start until after that. It can start up till like, well, it can start at any point because anyone could develop any depression at any time. But I think it's like up to a year, you should be looking for these symptoms and anxiety as well. So it's like, if the pediatrician's not asking for, I don't know who's asking, right? Nobody's asking, right? And so, but that is a lot on pediatrics office to do that. And I know that from my perspective, again, because I'm working mostly with the kids. So it is tricky, but I think it's so important because moms aren't being asked beyond that six week appointment. Well, and you can't tell. I mean, I've had moms where I'm like, wow, you look great. How are you doing? And Mm -hmm. we've given them an Edinburgh and you're like, oh, you're not doing that great. Not good. Yeah. And I've had so many moms that have said Mm -hmm. to me, thank you so much for asking me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know. And, you know, I mean, I've shared like, hey, I understand what you're going through. I know this Mm -hmm. is tough. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's really important. So we screen two, four and six months and Mm -hmm. at the two Mm -hmm. weeks. So we do, you know, like four screens. That's amazing. But we also had a plan in place. And again, because we Mm -hmm. had integrated behavioral health, Mm -hmm. if we had a high risk, like a suicidal Mm -hmm. mom, which I don't think is all that common, but Mm -mm. it isn't. If we had a a worry, yeah. Mm -hmm. If we had a mom that was really high risk, then we 
could contact their OB. And we would treat that just like if we had a suicidal teen, you know, in terms of, I mean, if it was acute, Mm -hmm. then we would get them to a higher level of care. Mm -hmm. But we just kind of jumped in. And, you know, initially, I think there was some angst about it. Oh, absolutely. Actually gone pretty well. And, you know, I think if it's just normalized, like, Mm -hmm. hey, part of your visit is how are you doing? And Mm -hmm. I always ask about sleep, because I think that's such a big deal Mm -hmm. for postpartum moms and dads. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think the incidence of um, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders is like one in five moms and one in 10 dads. Yep. And I didn't realize that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because we don't really ask dads anything, right? No, we don't. No, mm-hmm. I ask my husband because I, you know, I know. but um, when I think about <laughs> because it, because you're a therapist, right? right? When I think about it, like I did take the Edinburgh, well, what was, I'll give my experience. When I took the Edinburgh at the eight week pediatric visit, I was very excited, which is probably like the weirdest response. But because of my background, I was like, I don't know. I was like so excited that they gave it to me. And I did show my husband and he was like, oh, this is interesting. And he's like, I think I answered okay on all these. So it was cute because he like looked through <laughs> it. But my pediatrician did make a point to go over it with me. And then every visit has really asked him how he's doing too and not just me and I think that's really really important and he's been able to go to the visits that was like he wasn't able to go to any of the OB visits so but he has been able to go to the pediatrics visits which has been great but I do think that's really important because I think he was very helpful and he's missing sleep too and he's having to adjust to different changes as well and he went back to work way faster you know all these things and he was working from home which is was helpful for me but sometimes not great because I was interrupting his day a little bit his work day that was fine but also probably not easy yeah people aren't asking dads as much and I think it happens way more than we think that they're affected too. That is something we should keep in mind. And Mm -hmm. the other thing is, I think for so many moms, I hope that their partner, whether it's their wife, their husband, whomever, the grandparent, Mm -hmm. whoever is their partner, is that they're the person that I'm looking to, to pick up on, you know, and I often would say, you know, you kind of know what your partner looks like when she's at her best. Mm -hmm. And you may be the one that goes, eh, something's not right here, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and we need some help and help doesn't necessarily mean, you know, something intensive, like with any other kind of mood struggle or behavior struggle. It often is you know, some handholding, you know, sometimes medication, but not always. One of the things that we were able to do in our community here in Mm -hmm. Kalamazoo is we have a support group Mm -hmm. and that's been great. It's free during COVID. It was virtual. So of course, like everything else, but I think for a lot of moms that that was really helpful. And we started doing screening, not only the Edinburgh in the hospital before moms went home. And I know some people are like, well, is that really the best time to give it to somebody? But we also did a risk assessment looking at, did they have a high risk delivery? Were there some other risk factors? Okay. And it was like 40% of moms have some mm-hmm. risk factors. So that's a lot. A lot. That's a high, that's a high amount. Yeah. That's absolutely. a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it is a, you have this interesting perspective now that you're yeah. a parent mm-hmm. and a psychologist. Yeah. What do you think parents most want from their pediatrician, from you? I mean, what do they need yeah. the most? I mean, clearly, yeah. you know, fix my kid's ear infection, but what else do they want? Yeah. I think, and maybe this is also like this COVID pandemic time, but I have found lately, I mean, I haven't been to work in a little bit, but pre me having this baby, I was noticing a lot of parents, especially when they had the little ones at home a lot, were wanting kind of, well, they wanted obviously some help with behavior or whatever was going on, but also they wanted some reassurance of like, am I doing the right thing? And some validation of like, your feelings are 
appropriate and your feelings or your feel, you know, that's okay to feel that way. And I'm noticing that more and more. I had so many parents who had little kids, for example, and they're like, oh my God, they're running around the house and I'm trying to get work done and I'm working from home. Right. And they're like listing all the things they're doing and they're doing everything actually really well, but it's just a lot. And so sometimes just hearing that was really helpful. I think to know, you know, I could tweak some things and give them some different bits of advice on like, okay, could we could do this or this or this. But a lot of times I think they wanted to know, like, am I doing okay? And I think from as having like an infant, I asked a lot of questions in my visits and I just, yeah, I wanted guidance, but also some reassurance that we were not doing the wrong thing. I guess that'd be a good way to put, yeah, that we were not just completely screwing up everything. Cause I, there were a few times where I was like, we did this, is this wrong? And they were like, no, that's not wrong. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I think some validation, reassurance, and then also just like general education of like, this is what to look for. Another piece is like, sometimes people said things to me, for example, some people told me about the baby blues. And I did not know what that meant until it actually happened to me. And so maybe even like just more explanation or something. I'm not sure, but like, that's what I felt like I needed. Cause then I started Googling all this stuff, which isn't good to do. Right. And then I was like, oh, this is what that is. But they, someone said something, but I was also like in a hospital bed and I don't think I heard what they were saying, or I don't think they explained it the right way, or I don't know. Well, (laughs) sometimes we have to say things more than once. I think that's because. You know, when you've got a new baby and you're at the hospital and there's like 8 million things that you have to do checklists so you can go Mm -hmm. home and you're just wondering like, how do I get this car seat in here? And, you know, do I have all my clothes on? Yeah. And, you know, so the last thing you just may not hear everything. And so that's why Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we do these visits right after, you know, two days after you go home. So there's all these touch points. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really critical. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think that you really struck on, you know, most people want to know I'm a good mom. I'm a good dad. This is hard. I mean, parenting Mm -hmm. is hard. Mm -hmm. I think it's the hardest thing that most of us do. And because we want to get it right. And then there's a lot of shame. You know, if you can't breastfeed, well, you're a bad mom or, you know, like I had to have a C-section and daughter was breached and people were like, well, didn't you stand on your head? Why didn't you try and turn her? And I'm like, you know, like it was my fault. So there's all these things about, and you know, should you make your own baby food or not? Mm -hmm. And you know, there's all these, Mm -hmm. I mean, you probably know it more. I don't know if you're on any blogs or. Oh, I am. Oh, I am. And what's that? What's that like? Because yeah, I mean, you're at a yeah. way different generation than I yeah. am. Well, my baby was also breached and I had to have a C-section. I just wanted to point to tell you that. And I also had a weird amount of shame around that too. Like I did something wrong, but I didn't do anything wrong. And like everyone, you know, and I, but I really thought, I really asked about a million people if I was doing the wrong thing. And they were like, no, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> like, you're okay. I just wanted to, yeah. So that was interesting. I didn't know that would happen. And it was very bizarre, but it happened. And then the blogs are fascinating because there is a lot. It's not always shaming. Some of them are really, some of them are nice and good and uplifting, but yeah, some of them are a little bit like, oh, if you're not breastfeeding exclusively, like something's wrong with you or like, why didn't you try pumping more? You know, different things like that. And I just can't always look at them because it's a little bit setting. Also from like my psychologist background, there are a lot of blogs that people are seeking advice from other moms and moms are giving some good advice and some really interesting things that I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> like ask your pediatrician, ask somebody <laughs> else. Do not ask <laughs> these like, people. Huh. Well, it's like, you know, of course, I think a big challenge for pediatricians is Uh vaccine hesitancy, vaccine Uh refusal. Yes. 
and there's a lot of misinformation. And I think the big thing is it plays into people's fear that I'm going to do this horrible thing to my Mm -hmm. baby. But the flip side of it is if you choose not to vaccinate, Mm -hmm. you're also making a choice to end your baby is that's also a risk. So Mm -hmm. it's not a risk-free proposal. Mm -mm. Either either way, it's not a risk. You're absolutely right. It's not But people don't, it's kind of like a passive risk that they don't think Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. and, you know, don't believe it's real, you know, and Mm -hmm. because we've done such a good job of vaccinations, of course, a lot of the diseases we don't see. I mean, I'm old Mm -hmm. enough that I remember when we started doing chickenpox vaccine and when we started doing Haemophilus influenza B. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's diseases I saw as a resident 25, 30 years ago that Mm -hmm. they don't see now. They don't mm-hmm. see epiglottitis. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, there's a lot of fear. And I think people are so afraid that they're going to do the wrong thing or, mm-hmm. you know, like if, like you said, like if I don't breastfeed my baby for six months. And I think mm-hmm. as physicians, we have to be careful how we mm-hmm. frame that because we want to encourage it because we do yeah. think breast milk is best. Mm-hmm. But that if for whatever reason you can't or you choose not to, that you're not a horrible person. Yeah, I think I had a good experience on the medical side of it where the I said I wanted to breastfeed and people were very encouraging, but nobody was pushy in that way. And I think that that's wonderful. I know I've talked to some friends who didn't feel that way about some of the care they were getting. They felt a little more pressure, but I think I got, I don't know if I got lucky or maybe it's like times are changing. I don't know. I think it's been great to, yes, you want to push for what you think is maybe the, you know, the gold standard, you know, we always push for that, but obviously that can't always happen because we know that like, I mean, I don't know, I'm breastfeeding and it's hard. (laughs) It's really hard. And it's actually, I've had an okay time. If I look at the, I'm okay. Like I did a pretty good job and it was still really, really hard. And there were many times I wanted to quit. And I remember thinking if I do, I'm a bad mom, but I know that's not true. Like, I know that's not, that can't be true. Well, I think there's Um, a lot of, a lot of that internalizing Like I'm not good enough if I don't do, and something terrible is going to happen to my baby because I screw it up Yeah, and it's my fault and I'm supposed to be enjoying this Mm -hmm. and it's supposed to be wonderful and like I'm glowing and, you know, and half the time I, it'd be like two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, I'm not dressed. I mean, maybe could I shower? I, you know, I don't know. There's a great Instagram site called postpartum stress. Yeah. I started following it because you told me to. (laughs) And I love it because it's like these cartoons Yeah, and the person is saying to the mom, how are you doing? And she's like, fine. And then in her head, in the bubble over her head is like, I'm afraid I'm going to throw my baby down the stairs. And I, you know, like crazy. (laughs) stuff that goes through your head, but you can't help it because you're like on high alert to protect your infant. So you're thinking like danger, danger. Yeah. All the time. You're like worried all the time. It's true. Yeah. The worry is constant. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you weren't worried, a worry weren't before, you're going to be now. Well, and for me as a person who's anxious anyway, I would be yeah. worried if I wasn't worried. Like, I mean, yeah, must, it would be weird if you, you like, yeah. I'm going to miss something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Always on high alert. So, um, but yeah, yeah, it's interesting. The fears and the worries that come up that again, I know as a psychologist, again, I knew I'm putting that in quotes. No one can see me, but I knew a lot of that would happen, but it it doesn't make sense until you experience it. And I think that's important for people to know, to know that like, sometimes it just doesn't, you can't put words to it. It happens. And then, and it's okay. Like if you feel anxious or stressed or worried when you're having an infant, that's like totally normal. I think it's nice to be able to say to a parent, Mm -hmm. Hey, 
you know, this is a wonderful experience. And I don't know if this is true for you, but you know, mm-hmm. some moms, they worry a lot or it doesn't feel that great. It's not that mm-hmm. much fun and that's mm-hmm. okay too. And that's yeah. not that uncommon. Mm-hmm. So it may not be true for you, but if some of those things come up for you, it's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, back when I had my baby, I mean, nobody asked that. I mean, I would have been so happy had some, I mean, I, I think my husband you. just got tired mm-hmm. of me crying all the time and like, he didn't know what to do. And, yeah. you know, and then I had to quit breastfeeding because I went on Valium for a while because I had so much anxiety. It was like crippling. I mean, I had to go back to like the pediatric ICU for my residency and I was out of my mind worried. And then I had to stop breastfeeding because I didn't think it was safe to take that. I mean, nobody knew much back then. And, you know, I just wish in retrospect, somebody had asked me, are you okay? Because it would have been not Mm -hmm. so much. (laughs) Yeah. And it's as simple and it sounds simple to just say, are you okay? But to really ask that question is so important. Even when you're giving these screeners, yeah, you might look at it and say, oh, this looks good. I think it's still so important to talk about it, right? Like even, so if I'm giving any sort of screener to like my patients, PHQ, whatever it is, I usually go over the things that they mark as high anyway, even if it's not even that high, but I'll be like, oh, sleep's been weird. Um, It's a, it's room for a conversation and it, can really help someone just to like go through some of those things that you may say like, oh, all they marked was that sometimes they're anxious. Acknowledge that and be like, oh, you know, how are you feeling about that? Tell me more. And that can be like a short little conversation that can mean the world to a new mom or anyone really. Patients, like your teenage patients, just asking a simple question. And people get scared to ask because then they're like, what's going to come next? But I think it's worse to not ask because then then what's next? Then no one's asked them anything. One of the things and probably one of my favorite phrases I learned from Vince Folletti, who did the mm-hmm, yeah. adverse childhood experiences study. And, you know, they're asking, mm-hmm. you know, about your history of abuse. I mean, like really Absolutely. intense questions. Yeah. And he said, you know, people are afraid to ask those questions because what do I do? I mean, what do you I do mm-hmm, if you mm-hmm. say I was raped? You know, oh, my God, now I've opened this Pandora's box and it would have been better had I not asked. But what he said was the asking is is in and of itself therapeutic because it helps kind of chase away shame that if I'm Mm -hmm. asking you, it must be like not that bad that Mm -hmm. you would share that something difficult's happening. And so I think you said it earlier, that validation and reassurance that you're not a terrible person, Mm -hmm. like something's really wrong with you. Yeah, absolutely. agree. Asking is better than not asking. I mean, how many times I asked a question to a teenager like asked about suicidality. And then they're like, yeah, actually, sometimes I do think about wanting to die, but they would never have told me that before. Now, does that mean they had a plan or no, but like, it's a hard question to ask, but it's so important to ask because they may not tell you. And that doesn't mean that that person now has to go to an inpatient unit. It just means like, we need to listen and be there for them and figure out like, what are some safe things that we need to do? And I just think it's just so important to ask those questions, those hard questions, and people are going to appreciate it. Nobody's ever been like, I don't like the questions you asked me. Well, maybe, maybe like a teenage boy, maybe (laughs) they're a little cranky, but most of the time people are not like, oh, why would you ask that? They're appreciative of it. It doesn't, Um, it doesn't feel, I mean, because we have this sort of trusted relationship that I'm trying to create. And somehow if you're avoiding it, it kind of feels like you're missing something. I mean, Mm -hmm. it it creates a bond to ask those questions. And Mm -hmm. as long as you don't like, you know, if you ask a question, you're like, oh my God, don't tell me that you need to go to the emergency room right this second. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not great. So you kind of need to know what you're doing, but you have to do, yeah, no next steps. If something is right, you you need to have a plan. But Mm -hmm. I also think about, you know, worst case scenario, what if you do have a mom that is thinking about hurting herself or her child? And you asked 
and you could prevent that. I mean, what a gift that you could do something. And so this taking care of moms, I think is like so important for what we do for Mm -hmm. babies. Yeah, absolutely. If moms aren't being taken care of in some way or taking care of themselves, they can't give it all to their kids that they want to give to them, right? It's just too hard. If they're not sleeping, if they're not eating, if if they're all in their head, it's going to be too difficult. They're not getting that support. So it's really important to make sure we're taking care of them too. I hope you're taking notes for yourself. I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying to do I'm trying to make it good for me. I really am. I think I'm doing better than I thought. That first month though, I just want to say that for anyone who's listening and is not a mom yet or, or parent or dad or any, whatever. First month is not a joke. That was what I was not prepared for. That just like cycle of feeding and not sleeping and not knowing what your baby wanted. So Well, and the other thing, it's not like they smile. I mean, they poop and pee and cry and sleep. And I think there's that idea that it's supposed to be like magical every moment. Like I have this gift, which it is, of course, Yeah, but it doesn't always feel like that when you haven't been sleeping. Yeah. Or even in the hospital when they're like, you know, you're half numb and then they're like, hold your baby and try to breastfeed. And I'm like, I can't even move my arms <laughs> doing here. <laughs> like, and they're like, yeah, you're doing great. I'm like, no, oh, thank you. But I, I don't know. <laughs> I can't even hold her. Like it was so, it's such an interesting experience, even from that early on. And I was like, whoa, this is like really difficult. I think there's something to be said for empathy and trying to be, you know, and again, if you're a mom who, you know, as a clinician, if you're Mm -hmm. a mom and you've had any trouble and you Mm -hmm. can relate, but Mm -hmm. I don't think you have to suffer to have some empathy for the suffering. I mean, it's what we do as care providers, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, I think you're absolutely right. This has just given me like an extra spin on like something I always cared a lot about and really pushed for. And now I'm just like, okay, now I've experienced it. And now I care maybe even more than I did before. So now you're going to be a, you're going to be the campaigner for all things prenatal, peripartum. Yeah. Yes. Actually, I would like to, because I just think it's so important because you you have a new mission, have a new mission. And this all goes back to that, like preventative care, right? Like it all goes back to my little IVH prevention. Yeah. I, again, I, I cannot say enough about having somebody to help, you know, especially like a situation like this. I mean, if I'm Mm -hmm. asking a mom, how are you? And she's not doing that great to be able to say, Mm -hmm. I have an expert right here in my practice. Let me Mm -hmm. go get her or him and they can spend a little bit of time so we can see how we can best support you. And I mean, and if they are, you know, then you just say, you know, would it be okay if I contact your OB Mm -hmm. or, you know, Mm -hmm. your primary care? Mm -hmm. And if other practices also have an integrated behavioral health person, then you can work together then. I mean, our institution, because we have integrated behavioral health at all of the outpatient practices. Well, now we've got these interrelated teams. Yeah. And that's ideal. In the adult practices too? Yeah. At Bronson? That's great. OB. Wonderful. Yeah. All the primary pediatrics, Mm -hmm. um, internal medicine, family medicine, and OB. And so, you know, if we had a mom, you know, my social workers calling the OB social worker and saying, hey, you know, can we get her hooked back up? So that kind of linking in care, it just made sense. And it was a relief for everybody. It's nice to have that, to know that there's an expert in every area. So you know where to 
kind of go next if you need that extra support. And it's wonderful. I chose a physician, like my own office, plus the they like work together. Like it's a big medical system. It's like pen medicine. And I did that on purpose because I was like, that's, I feel like that's important to kind of have like all these different teams working together. Not that every place has to have that, but like it does feel really nice. Really well, nice. it kind of creates a truly a safety net. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, we gotcha. You know, this is obviously you're not my patient, but you're, you know, the mom of my patient and I want you to be okay. Yeah, yeah. And let me get some help for you. Let's do this together. And I'm going to check back in on you or my mm-hmm. nurse is going to call. I mean, you don't have to use an integrated behavioral health person. If you have well-trained staff, you know, you can find Absolutely. most of our, you know, MAs, RNs are women. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I think that there's, you know, something to be said for finding the people that can help you. Like Mr. Rogers says, in times of crisis, find the helpers. Absolutely. Yes. Maybe you don't have a psychologist or social worker on staff, but if you have someone that can even just provide some resources and just be there to listen for just even a few extra minutes, that can be just super helpful. Just right there, just giving that extra support in that moment. And then, you know, on a follow-up phone call, I mean, that is not, you know, like rocket science. That's not that hard Mm -hmm. to say, Hey, you know, Dr. Gugino saw you a couple of days ago and I know she was, you know, had some concerns that, you know, wanted to check on you. So I'm just calling for her. Just wanted to see how you're doing. I mean, people love that. It's nice to have somebody care about you. 100%. Yeah, I know. Every time I get a phone call from someone like a physician, I'm like, oh, that's so nice. (laughs) It really is. It does feel really good. It makes you feel special. Like somebody Mm -hmm. took the time to really ask if you're okay. Yeah. And then if you're not okay, to be able to say, I can help you with that. Yeah, absolutely. So, Mm -hmm. well, I hope that you do have a fire lit under you now to do this work. I do. I like have been feeling it and maybe it's part of this pandemic, but I feel like I've been thinking more, trying to be more creative about like, what can we do? I don't know. Like there's just so many things we need to be doing. I did. I just think, I think this whole pandemic has brought a lot of things to light too with like our patients and parents and families. Well, I think, yeah. We've had for so many years, a lot of fear of each other and, you know, stirring up, you know, hatred and indifference. And it's like, you know, if we can just see the humanity in other people and be willing Mm -hmm. to be empathetic Mm -hmm. and offer help and comfort, I just Mm -hmm. think it feels better. And I think it makes for a better place and it takes everybody and we each have a role to play. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to be a professional, but you can be a support person. There's a program that was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and They did this coolest thing where they got moms Mm -hmm. who would actually volunteer and they would go into like, for example, your home and they would come and do laundry for you, or they might make a meal and it was totally volunteer, but you could sign up for this kind of support. It's kind of like what your mom would do for you, but maybe you didn't have that. And it was just like the coolest thing, you know, how you fund all those things is a whole nother thing and run those, you know, it takes energy, but there's lots to be said. Well, I hope that Mm -hmm. I know you're going back to work next week. When this airs, you will have already been at work for a couple months. So um, I know that you'll do a good job and I know that you're a good mom because just because of who you are and you you will do fine, but I'm glad that you're, you know, willing to except that even as a professional, you don't always know what you're doing because you you just don't. Yeah. I hope that's helpful for some people to hear as well, to hear that just because we are professionals in this field does not mean we are always feel confident in our own abilities because it's hard to feel confident when you're, when it comes to parenting. (laughs) Yeah. 
it, yeah, you know. I can talk to my patients about stuff all day long, but yeah, when it comes to, it's like, whoa, this is different, <laughs> even though it shouldn't be, but it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, enjoy motherhood. And mm-hmm. I'm so grateful for the work that you do. And I'm Aww, so grateful that our paths you. crossed. I know it was the best experience ever because it's got me to where I am now. Oh, Without well, it, I don't know that I'd be here, right? Exactly. Uh, well, I'm glad that I could be of help to you in your journey. And I appreciate your time today. Thanks oh, thank so you. much. Thanks for having me. It was wonderful. Thank you. All right. Well, you take care. You too. Thanks so much, Dr. Kuhn, and congratulations on your new baby. So here are some takeaways. Number one, integrated behavioral health is the integration of mental health professionals in medical settings working side by side, or as I like to say, at the hip with clinicians. Number two, parents are beginning to seek out integrated behavioral health clinicians, and it's going to become an expectation that primary care provider offices offer this service, so be on the cutting edge. Number three, being a psychology professional does not necessarily prepare you for motherhood. I think this goes for being a medical professional as well. You know some stuff, like book stuff, and patient experience, but it is not the same as being a mom with a new baby in your arms who needs you 24-7. I can certainly attest to that. Number four, to the question, should pediatric clinicians be asking moms about anxiety and depression? Her answer, yes, 100%. You can't tell by looking at moms if they're okay or not. And it's rare that someone doesn't want to be asked if they are okay. Jen was really excited to be asked by her pediatrician. Number five, if you're going to ask difficult questions, specifically screening for anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation, have a plan for what to do in a crisis and be glad that you were the one who intervened. You could save a mom. You could save a baby. Number six, don't forget about dads. One in five moms experience perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, and one in 10 dads. They aren't sleeping either. And this is really a new challenge for them, and they're worrying about the moms. Number seven, parents, including professionals who are parents, want reassurance that they are good parents, and validating their feelings is really helpful for doing that. They want to know that they're okay and that their struggles are normal. Number eight, sometimes moms need to hear things more than once. This goes to the same for partners. Jen mentioned about baby blues. She sort of heard about it when she was in the hospital, but then experienced it and kind of forgot about it. So it's something to touch on more than once. Number nine, the first month is just hard and that's okay and that's normal. I think we have this cultural belief that being a mother, a new father is like the biggest joy and every minute is, you know, unicorns and daisies. And honestly, I mean, if that's true for you, that's awesome. But for some of us, it just isn't true. And it's okay that you're not perfect. It's really hard. And especially if you're not sleeping, that's just really difficult. And if it's your first baby, I mean, honestly, you just don't know what you're doing. So it's okay to struggle. I mean, you can't really help it, right? Number 10, being a parent is difficult, but it does bring some of the greatest rewards. And, you know, as a parent, I adore my kids. I'm so grateful for 
all of the wonderful things that have come out of parenting. But I'll be honest with you, it is a challenge. It's a difficult job and you want to do it right. So, you know, give yourselves a break. It's really okay. As always, thank you guys. I appreciate your time. And I hope that this was a fun interview for you to listen to. And if you aren't using integrated behavioral health practices in your clinic, think about how you might do it. I think there's some ways to get creative. And if you check out my website at medicalbehavioralhealthsolutions.com, I am here to help you look at what you've got. And if you need help thinking about how you might build this in your practice, reach out. I hope you guys all have a great day and I will look forward to you joining me next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.